When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey there. Do you want to know where you can find almost 400 episodes just waiting to tell you the history of World War II? Hi, I'm Ray Harris Jr., inviting you to join me at worldwar2podcast.net, where I provide in-depth examinations of the key people and events that shaped World War II. While there, you'll also find interviews with authors who provide new and interesting reflections that help to further our understanding of the conflict and the people that fought it. And that's just the free stuff. Become a member and you'll get access to monthly bonus episodes that will give you even more history. And more history is always good. That address again is worldwar2podcast.net. See you there. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 57, Kilkenny Curator. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I must thank my House of Lords, newly joined by Daryl Parker, the Earl of Evesham, the Earl of Ravensworth, Jordan Alexander Holt, and Stefan, Baron Lackamy. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last time, we saw how the First English Civil War had politicised wide swathes of the English population. The collapse of censorship controls allowed the publication of a flood of political and religious tracts. Petitioning took on greater importance for the people, capital T, capital P, to make their wishes known, or to contest the wishes of other petitioners. The very fact that half the kingdom was fighting and winning a war against God's appointed regent on earth, King Charles. All these factors and more opened up space in the political society for downright revolutionary ideas. Today, we will see how the military situations in all three Stuart kingdoms were affected by Charles I's surrender, after he eventually saw the reality of his defeat. Travelling incognito to the camp of the Army of the Covenant, the king gave himself up to the Scots. As we'll cover in more detail next week, 
Charles intended to divide his enemies and manipulate the situation so that one way or another he would be restored to his rightful and God-mandated place. One of the first things he did, in an effort to win some sympathy with an act of goodwill, was to order his remaining supporters in England, Scotland and Ireland to surrender, disband or come to terms with their enemies. In a letter to Parliament, the King would announce that he had ordered his remaining garrisons across England, including his wartime capital, the University City of Oxford, to surrender under honourable terms. After plenty of wrangling, these terms were finally agreed between Sir Thomas Fairfax and his new model army and the garrison of Oxford, including the King's Privy Council. Prince Rupert and Prince Maurice of the Rhine were given permission to remain in England for the next six months, while they were granted passports to leave the kingdom, provided they stayed away from London. This was very unlike the fate for the 15-year-old Duke of York, the future James VII and II, and the king's second eldest son. He was transported to the capital, where a close eye could be kept on the second in line to the throne. He was kept alongside the rest of his siblings, who had fallen into the hands of Parliament. The Oxford garrison itself was permitted to march out, under arms and with all honours, before disbanding 15 miles from the city and given passes, permitting them safe conduct wherever they so chose to go. Finally, the symbols and instruments of royal government, the Great Seal first and foremost, were handed over to Fairfax. The remaining major royalist garrisons, and there weren't many, followed suit. Apart from a few holdouts, the war in England was over. In Scotland, Charles's orders to disband were received with varying reactions. The Marquis of Montrose, still reeling from the disaster of Philippa, followed his sovereign's orders. Once he reached acceptable terms for the safety of his men from covenant or reprisals, he disbanded his force and sailed from the kingdom into exile. As you might remember when we covered this with its own episode, his supposed ally, but actual rival, the Marquis of Huntley, was far more resistant to disbanding once Montrose followed through, because now he was the foremost Scottish royalist. Hurrah! There might also have been secret orders from Charles to keep the skeleton of an army together, in case it was needed, because this was Charles, and he was a big fan of secret orders. In the southwest and west of Scotland, the two royalist figures of note are the Marquis of Antrim and Alistair McCullough. McCullough had abandoned Montrose in the weeks before Philippa, leading his Irish and his islanders back into Campbell territory to plunder and pillage the hated clan. The Earl of Antrim soon arrived from Ireland, bringing reinforcements, and the two then conquered most of the Kintyre Peninsula. When Charles ordered them to disband, Antrim followed his king's command and returned to Ireland. But McCullough didn't. There were still Campbells to kill, after all. Plus, he didn't have much faith in the word of the Covenanters. In June, his ally, James Lamont, leader of Clan Lamont, surrendered to the resurgent Campbell Covenanter force. Despite the terms of their surrender, the Covenanters took his soldiers and civilians captive, took them to the churchyard of Danoon, and executed them. The death toll from the Danoon massacre ranges from 70 men to more than 200 men, women, and children of the Lamont clan. James Lamont was spared from death 
but was kept imprisoned and forced to sign over much of his family lands. With examples like that, Macala decided not to surrender, instead continuing to fight until the summer of 1647, when he led his forces on a fighting retreat back to Ireland. Last time we saw Ireland, we covered the secret signing of the Ormond Peace Treaty. After months of work, Charles I's Lord Deputy of Ireland, the Marquis of Ormond, had come to an agreement with the Supreme Executive Council of the Irish Confederacy in the nick of time. Ormond's commission, his authority to make this peace, was just days away from expiring, and both sides understood that time was of the essence. Ormond wanted peace in order to better aid the king's efforts in England, and a settled peace between the king's forces in Ireland and the Confederacy would allow him to send more men and money to Charles. The peace faction of the Irish Confederacy wanted to send their own resources to aid the king in the Civil War, not just in the hope of further concessions to Irish Catholics, both Gaelic and Old English, but because the alternative was unbearable. A victorious English Parliament, presumably supported by the Scottish Presbyterian Covenanters, would disavow any agreement made by the King, and turn their zealous attention to the Third Stuart Kingdom. Parliament was, after all, deeply hostile to the Irish. They were so hostile, in fact, that they'd made their hostility law. In practical terms, the Adventurers Act, passed before the English Civil War began, had raised funds to suppress the Irish Rebellion by promising confiscated Irish land. That debt needed to be paid. But besides that, there were deep suspicions in Parliament of the Irish, Catholic and otherwise. The hideous reports of the Rebellion and the atrocities which it unleashed, many true, more embellished, had been met with horror across England, Scotland and Wales. And when it seemed the king would bring these barbarous monsters to fight in the civil war on his behalf, Parliament passed the Ordinance of No Quarter to the Irish, which is pretty self-explanatory. It required any captured Irish soldiers to be immediately and summarily executed. Though these atrocities happened rarely, they did happen. When Shrewsbury fell to Parliament in February 1645, a dozen Irish prisoners were hanged, and Prince Rupert retaliated by hanging the same number of parliamentarian prisoners. After Naseby, more than a hundred Welsh women among the Royalist camp followers were mistaken for Irish speakers and killed without mercy by the victorious New Model Army. Hardliners among the New English, the Protestant English settlers and officials who had been making their careers and fortunes in Ireland since the Reformation, found zealous supporters in the English Parliament, especially once Ormond established his control over Dublin and purged parliamentarian sympathisers from the Irish government. The success of Parliament over the King in England would set the stage for their return to power in Dublin. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, 
and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? As the king's position collapsed in 1646, the Confederates' military situation was on the rise. On the 13th of June, the papal nuncio, Giovanni Battista Rinocini, received word of Owen Roe O'Neill's decisive victory at the Battle of Ben Burb. O'Neill led around 5,000 men from the Confederate Army of Ulster, freshly supplied from Rinocini's coffers, and his men had been freshly paid and armed. His opponent was the preeminent Covenanter commander in Ireland, Major General Robert Monroe. He commanded around 6,000 men, roughly divided between Covenanter Scots and Ulster settlers, with the majority being Covenanters. Monroe marched his army south into Confederate territory, leading them on a forced march to intercept O'Neill's smaller force. At Benburb, Monroe and O'Neill clashed in the largest set-piece battle of the Confederate Wars. Monroe was counting on support from another Covenant army out of Coleraine, but O'Neill had sent a force of cavalry to delay them, and they were still miles away. At Benburb, on the 5th of June, Monroe's force was arrayed on the banks of the Blackwater River, facing O'Neill's army on the higher ground. The battle, which the Dictionary of Irish Biography calls the greatest ever victory by an Irish commander on native soil, displayed the strengths of O'Neill and rare mistakes from Monroe. The Covenanter commander ordered his forces, exhausted from the long march, to assault a dug-in enemy at the top of a hill, marching into the light of the setting sun. When they failed to break the Confederate formation, and with the Covenanters wavering in the push of Pike, O'Neill ordered his own offensive. Monroe's infantry began to be pushed back down the hill, until their formation collapsed. One final volley of musket fire broke the morale of the disorganised Covenanters, and the Confederates charged down the hill. In total, between two and three thousand of Monroe's army was killed at Benburb. Casualties of the fighting, cut down in the rout, or drowned trying to swim across the Blackwater. In comparison, O'Neill lost a few hundred men at most. Monroe fled back to Carrickfergus with what was left of his army, and just like that, the Covenanters ceased to be a notable threat to the Confederacy, their forces remaining on the defensive in Belfast, Carrickfergus, and a few other garrisoned towns and settlements. This did not mean that Monroe or the Covenanters were out of the war, and O'Neill didn't have the manpower or artillery to snuff out their garrisons in Derry and the east of the province, but Benburb put them on the defensive. Elsewhere in Ireland, the Confederacy enjoyed similar successes over the summer of 1646. Viscount Muscury captured the fortress of Bunratty, 
and Thomas Preston seized Roscommon. Rinaccini could, and did, consider his efforts instrumental to these Irish victories. His money, his supplies, had armed and fed and paid the armies of Preston and O'Neill. His influence had never been stronger. His militant policy was working. And until a religious settlement was reached between the Confederacy and the King, the Confederacy should keep fighting. Either the clergy would receive justice from the King and his Lord Deputy, or the Confederacy would conquer the whole island of Ireland. Either way, Catholicism would return to its rightful place. And then, the news broke that the Confederacy and Ormond had signed a peace treaty. Ormond published the document on the 30th of July, under pressure from within and without the government. Charles had written to Ormond earlier in the month from his Scottish captivity, urging his Lord Deputy to end the conflict between Irish royalists and the Confederacy. Well, good news. Ormond and the Confederate Peace Faction had already done that. So now they made the so-called Ormond Peace public. Rinaccini was livid. The terms of the peace said nothing about a religious settlement. What role would the Catholic Church have in Ireland? What about the restoration of church land? Would the Catholic hierarchy be allowed to operate in the open? Could Catholics serve in the king's government or the army? This Ormond peace promised, at best, toleration for Catholics, and this simply was not good enough. And that was besides the fact that the peace faction had kept all this secret for months. The timing for Rinaccini's discovery could not have come at a worse time for the peace faction. He had scheduled a synod at Waterford for August, long before the deception over the Ormond peace was known, and this became Rinaccini's instrument of revenge. He found a willing audience from the Irish clergy, who also found the peace agreement to be insufficient. They wanted to be led in opposition to the peace. Rinaccini was more than happy to lead them. The papal nuncio was also helped by the failure of either the peace faction within the Confederacy, or Ormond himself, to quickly respond to the crisis, or even anticipate that the peace wouldn't be welcomed, and this allowed Rinaccini to seize the initiative. The Synod issued a warning to all good Catholics not to accept the Ormond peace on pain of excommunication, and this was incredibly effective in denying the treaty's support. To add to their moral authority, the clerics found willing allies in the Confederate army, no lesser figures than Thomas Preston and Owen Roe O'Neill, both of whom had been left out of the treaty and denied positions and authority within the settlement. All of this combined made Rinaccini nothing less than a kingmaker. He left Waterford and returned to the Confederate capital of Kilkenny in September. While Rinaccini was building this anti-Ormond coalition, the pro-Ormond faction eventually mobilised to defend their treaty, including Ormond himself. His friends on the Confederate Supreme Council invited their new ally to visit Kilkenny, and he did so with a guard of 2,000 men, entering the city to much pomp and circumstance. Ormond and friends tried to spread the good word that peace had come, 
but no one seemed to be listening. Ormond started a kind of public relations tour to try and convince people of the benefits of this treaty, and he invited the Confederate nobility to meet him at nearby Cashel. But when he arrived at the town gates, they remained closed to him. Now that was ominous. More ominous was the steady drip of defections from nearby Confederate forces to the encroaching armies of O'Neill and Preston. O'Neill was firmly and publicly an ally of the nuncio, but Ormond wrote to him anyway, pleading with him to give peace a chance, man. But O'Neill was unmoved. Messages to the defectors in Munster, Lords Inchiquin and Broghill, urging them to abandon Parliament and come back to the King, they had experience changing sides, also failed to win any support. Ormond could no longer ignore the fact that, whatever the agreement he had signed with the Confederate Supreme Council said, he was in enemy territory. With Rinaccini returning to Kilkenny, backed by the armies of Preston and O'Neill, Ormond made the sensible decision to run. He left the Confederate capital, and was back in Dublin by the 14th of September. The papal nuncio arrived in Kilkenny just a few days later. He had the backing of O'Neill and Preston and their armies, and the weight of the Catholic Church behind him. Rinaccini ordered the arrest of key members of the peace faction, such as Viscount Muscari, and the creation of a new Supreme Executive Council, with himself at its head. It was, in effect, a military coup. With his opponents within the Confederacy either deposed or imprisoned, Rinaccini's new government targeted his opponents out with the Confederacy. Who was at the centre of this ploy to divide the secular Confederates from their priests? Lord Deputy Ormond, safely ensconced in Dublin Castle. Deciding that decisive action was the best way to keep the initiative and hopefully attract more support from Rome and the rest of the Catholic world, Rinaccini, sorry, the Supreme Executive Council, commanded Preston and O'Neill to march on Dublin itself. One of Rinaccini's biographers calls this decision his most significant mistake during his nunciature. If you recall, many episodes ago when we first introduced Owen Rowe O'Neill and Thomas Preston, I made the point that these two men despised each other. Their poor relationship kept them from cooperating earlier in the war, but as commanders of the Ulster and Leinster armies respectively, they could mostly stay out of each other's way. They were determined to keep it that way, even now, as they both marched on the same target. Neither man would serve under the other, second forces to the other, they refused to march together, going by separate routes, and they even refused to communicate or coordinate with each other. Now this obviously made success less likely. Then we have to take into account that Preston was in secret communication with Ormond during this march, and that the Marquess of Clanricord was writing to all sides to try and bring about an alliance against the English Parliament. All this division and mutual distrust massively reduced any chance of the Confederacy capturing Dublin from Ormond. But even if the Confederates had been united, as their much larger army approached the walls to Dublin and its smaller garrison, they didn't have the artillery needed to make a breach and make their numbers count. A standoff ensued, 
before the Confederates had to withdraw back to their own territory for lack of supplies. The march on Dublin had failed. Rinuccini's folly had burned bridges with Ormond, and his failure to capture Dublin highlighted the deep divisions within the Confederacy. To try and bring about some kind of unity, Rinuccini ordered the release of the Peace Faction members he had ordered imprisoned during his coup, and a new General Assembly of the Confederacy was called. This assembly met in January, and on the 2nd of February, it overwhelmingly rejected the Ormond Treaty. It also renewed the Oath of Association, though with four amendments, which dictated the terms of any future peace treaty with the king. These amendments displayed the dominant influence of the papal nuncio and the clerical faction, and were a marked contrast to the earlier oath. First, free and public exercise of the Catholic faith, as it had been practised in the time of Henry VII, would be confirmed. Second, the clergy would be restored to all the privileges they had enjoyed before the Reformation. Third, all penal laws against Catholics would be repealed. And fourth, Catholic clergy would be restored to their lands, though with an allowance for seized monastic and church property, which was now owned by lay Catholics. Essentially, any future Ormond peace would require the religious terms agreed in secret with Glamorgan to be clear, public, and central to the treaty. Except the Confederates would have to wait quite some time before they enjoyed a second Ormond peace. Because now, Ormond threw in the towel. He'd tried to navigate his way between his king's public wishes, his king's secret demands, the Confederate peace faction, the Confederate clerical faction, the parliamentarians in Ireland, the covenanters in Ireland, and his own religious beliefs. And despite all of that, he had finally threaded the needle and completed a treaty only for a papal nuncio to threaten excommunication on anyone who agreed to it, march until Kilkenny, overthrow the government, arrest the people he'd been negotiating with, and then try and capture Dublin. So Ormond threw up his hands and turned to the only viable course which could secure Protestantism in Ireland, accommodation with the English Parliament. In early February 1647, Ormond offered his unconditional resignation from the Lord Deputyship to Parliament. Their replacement would arrive in the summer. Ormond would hand over his symbols of office and depart for England, leaving Ireland and the Catholic Irish to the tender mercies of the English Parliament. Next week, we will see how Charles will try to shatter the alliances between his enemies, as the question now turned from, how do we defeat the king, to, what do we do with him now? Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to, the king's favourite Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Wellington, Sue Bremner, the Marquess of Argyle, Bruce Simmons, and the Earl of Hampton, Alexander Travis. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. If you want to support the podcast in other ways, please recommend it to a friend, or post about the show on social media. Remember to give the History of World War II a listen if you don't already. It's on all good podcast apps, and I've provided a link in the description of today's episode. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, 
and to you for listening. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.